cytotoxic chemotherapy to targeted therapy. We've entered a new era of cancer care. What is life like as a provider in this new era? How can oncologists keep up with the latest science? I'm Nicole Magziars, Associate Director of Product and Strategy at New Century Health. And here to answer those questions are Drs. Vinay Prasad, a hematologist-oncologist, Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of California in San Francisco, and best-selling author of Malignant, How Bad Policy and Bad Evidence Harm People with Cancer, and Dr. Andrew Hurtler, Chief Medical Officer with New Century Health. Dr. Hurtler, welcome. Glad to be here, uh, Nicole, and welcome, Dr. Prasad. Again, uh, as with our previous discussion, certainly a, a very timely topic. Uh, as someone who practiced oncology for many years, we are very time challenged. Our, our days are exceedingly busy, um, largely seeing patients, uh, completing our documentation. Days often run 10, 12 hours. Sometimes you're still uh, working in your electronic medical record after dinner. So keeping up uh, on the latest medical literature in oncology uh, can be a challenge. Uh, I think I saw a quote recently that just to keep up a main, major journal articles, uh, an oncologist would need to spend uh, approximately uh, 40 hours a week reading medical literature. Well, none of us have the time to do that. So uh, my first question, Dr. Prasad, uh, is how, how does the practicing medical oncologists read the medical literature, how can they at least try to identify the most significant literature, uh, interpret it uh, with some degree of wisdom and put it into, uh, into practice uh, with their day-to-day -day patients? Well, it's a million dollar question, Dr. Hurtler. This is the question of being a doctor in the 21st century, the modern doctor. And um, I think our challenge is as great as it's ever been. Um, first, I just want to um, commiserate uh, with my fellow hematologist oncologists because I know, uh, just as you know, um, what it's like to be there in clinic. Um, there is a lot to do. The amount of things we have to do for our patients to ensure they're getting top medical care um, in 2020 is as great as it's ever been. I'm talking about both the treatments we're delivering and also the supportive care, bisphosphonates, um, and all the things we do. Um, to help guide someone down the path of having, uh, I think, the best cancer uh, experience and journey that we can do. Uh, sometimes that's cure. Uh, sometimes that's merely to palliate. Sometimes that's life extension. And sometimes um, it's it's just comfort. It's 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 the old art of being a doctor. Um, I think it's 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 as tough as it's ever been. And that takes time. Being a good doctor takes a lot of time. And that doesn't leave a lot of time left um, to be a student of the literature. And boy, is it a literature now. It's coming out as fast as it's ever come. Every tumor type, multiple studies every month. It, it, it's almost too much to keep up. So I'm deeply sympathetic. Um, I'm somebody who spends a great deal of my professional time uh, trying to keep a handle on it just to do some of the research I'm doing on policy and, and drug approval. Um, and, and it is a challenge even for me. Um, I can't imagine what it would be like to, to be uh, to be at a hundred percent clinical capacity and trying to do that on the side. I think it's it's a lot. Um, with that said, I will say um, there are some things that the average doc can do. Um, I'm not going to ask you for a lot. I'll I, I just ask you for a little. Um, maybe try to read one article a month. Th that's what I'm going to try to ask you for. And, and but how do you get to that one article? I think that's the challenge. Um, 
here's what I suggest. I think every practicing oncologist um, should just keep track of a couple journals. Um, you know, I, I like to look at the JCO. I like to look at it, um, you know, Monday afternoon. They kind of trickle articles out on the, in the early release JCO uh, here or there. Uh, they come, they, I can't, they surprise me. I never know when they're coming. Jam Oncology, they like to put out articles on a Thursday about middle of the day. New England Journal, of course, Wednesday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. They are punctual. They're putting out new articles there. I think those are just three journals to keep your eye on. You're a practicing oncologist. You got, you got JCO, you got Jam Oncology, you got New England Journal. That's a good start. And then once a month, think about what is the study that occurred in the last month that's potentially the most impactful for your practice? Um, I like to print the article. I'm old-fashioned that way. I don't print all my emails, but I do print an article here or there. Um, and I like to read it on a weekend. I like to just give it a good read. Um, and I think if you did that, you will become a better, a better navigator of, of, of medical journal articles. You'll get a little bit of practice, and you'll see how other people think about them. Um, I think... I think that that's my suggestion for the practicing doctor. It's a way to balance the realities of the job with the need to actually keep up. In part, most likely, uh, in response to this immense amount of clinical data, which very few uh, human minds can keep at the, uh, or very few of us can keep at the top of our mind, uh, Clinical pathways, clinical guidelines have been proposed as a way uh, to collate and summarize this data and, and make recommendations. Uh, in your uh, opinion, how useful and are these guidelines and pathways and how, how should a, uh, an oncologist use them? Well, I think it depends um, on, on, on the guideline and the pathway. Um, I think there are definitely um, many initiatives underway uh, for pathways um, that I'm deeply appreciative of. I think they really are initiatives that are meant to take the myriad choices patients and doctors face and help prioritize the valuable choices, the ones that have real bang, real benefit, um, and from the ones that are just empty choices, choices for choices' sake. Um, one of my concerns with some prominent guidelines uh, even the guidelines of major professional societies is that they aren't really guidance. They are laundry lists. They're, they're lists of every possible regimen you can give. And they're done for a reason. They're done to cajole and, and, and push uh, insurers to cover all those regimens for the doctor out there who might wish to choose it. Um, but I don't think that provides you real guidance because they don't help you figure out which regimen is the best regimen to routinely give. Um, so I think there is a challenge. One should take these things with a grain of salt. Um, I, I guess I've been fortunate to work with some people on different pathways that I think they really are doing their best to prioritize value and evidence-based pathways. I worry about guidelines and panel guide statements. I worry about professional groups um, where they always say newer is better, more is better, earlier is better. In oncology, sometimes newer is better. Sometimes more is better. Sometimes earlier is better, but not always. And sometimes sometimes having some prudence um, is, is the right strategy. You used a word just there, which is, is used very often in this day and age, and that was evidence-based. And most pathways will claim to be evidence-based. Um, oncologists will frequently uh, say, well, this, this chemotherapy choice is evidence-based. I think sometimes we don't really define what the word evidence-based means. Um, in my mind, it doesn't mean one article, uh, one abstract, but when we really talk about 
clinical evidence? What is what is evidence based? What is good evidence? It's almost a philosophical question, and I think different people will disagree. Um, but I, I've thought about it a fair bit in oncology. I guess I would give you I'll give you my two cents, um, and I encourage people to get two cents of others. Um, I would say in oncology, evidence based means um, you know for the most part. For people who are facing a new cancer diagnosis, the frontline treatment setting, I think for the most part, evidence-based means the res- the, that you're picking something based on the results of a randomized phase three trial. And, and I don't, I don't want to just say one randomized phase three trial. I want to say a good randomized phase three trial where the comparator is not a straw man comparator that we, we don't use in the United States, but a real comparator. A comparator is something we're really doing, really is our standard of care, and then the new treatment comes along and shows it's better. And evidence-based to me means it's not just better, it's not just more MRD, it's not just more PFS, it's better, it's more survival, it's more quality of life. Um, I think that's the standard, the average standard for frontline treatment of most of the things we deal with. Um, That's the bar we should be holding. Um, The bar for evidence-based in the latter lines, in relapse refractory settings, I think that's a moving target. Some places we're lucky, we're fortunate, we have randomized data. Some places we may only have uncontrolled um, studies showing response rate. I think I'm okay with that. I'm willing to live with that. But if you're picking a drug in the third line setting based on response rate, I think you should keep an eye out towards the toxicity, the track record of the drug, um, and the cost of the drug and the financial toxicity of the drug. And I think my worry is that we are seduced by newer is better. We're seduced by novel mechanism of action. I, I personally think mechanism of action, it's, it's neither here nor there. You know, mechanism of action is something that the lab scientists can talk about and they can make a great video for, but it doesn't help guide the doctor. Um, you know, the doctor should be guided by the toxicity, by the benefit, um, by the cost, by the tolerability, by the track record, by the ease of administration. That's what should guide the doctor. Um, so evidence-based, um, it's, it's, a, it's a live term. I think different people will mean different things. Um, I believe it, it means generally higher standards of evidence. So as we look at evidence, and as we look at the clinical trials, I and many other oncologists are so often frustrated by the fact that we rarely see the clinical trials run that we really want to see run, where we see the comparative effectiveness of chemotherapy treatment regimens that we use in the real world in the identical uh, situation. Real world evidence uh, is frequently touted as the solution, that this is going to help us compare the these alternative choices. And what's more comparative in a real world where we're not dealing with a highly selected population of patients that are wealthy enough and healthy enough to travel to an academic center, but are uh, my patients on Medicare with diabetes, coronary artery disease, who would never qualify for a clinical trial. In, in your mind, what is the role of real world evidence? Is this going to give us that comparative effectiveness data we so badly want? I mean, you know, it sounds great. It's it's the greatest branding I've ever heard, you know, real world evidence. Well, who doesn't want that? Who wants evidence from Mars or unreal evidence? We want real evidence. We don't want fake evidence. Um, real world sounds good. And it does recognize, I think, that the patients enrolled in clinical studies, I think as I discussed um, on a prior episode, you know, they're substantively different than the patients we take care of in the real world. Um, the patients we have in our clinics are older, they're frailer, um, they have socioeconomic restrictions, um, they have logistic restrictions, um, then the patients we take care of in clinical trials who often feel younger and healthier and, and, and more fit and connected. Um, 
But one of the challenges with real world evidence is that it often means real world observational evidence rather than clinical trial randomized evidence. And that's a, and that's a big difference because observational evidence um, in medicine, at least in the last 30 years, has led us to some historical blunders. It's led us to think some things were great, um, like autologous stem cell transplant for breast cancer that turned out in randomized trial to not be so great at all. Um, so I worry that real world evidence is being used as a moniker, um, being used as, um, uh, as paint um, to, to disguise um, what really is um, uncontrolled, observational, confounded evidence. Um, so how do, I, how do I use real world evidence in, in my life? Um, I think you can learn a lot from real world evidence. You can learn real world prognosis. Um, you can learn the duration of treatment in the real world. So, you know, patients in, in a pivotal trial of serafinib and HCC, you know, they take it for five months. How, how long do they take that drug in the real world? Um, I think the challenge with real world evidence is how do you decide between two treatment regimens if one has better survival in the real world? My fear is that uh, it will easily be used to mean that regimen A, better survival in the real world, is better than regimen B. But the doctors might be giving regimen A to fitter and healthier and younger patients in the real world. And you know what? As oncologists, we tend to do that. We tend to give our more toxic, aggressive treatments to the people who look like they can tolerate them. That's one of the classic training and biases of being an oncologist. But what that means is a real-world evidence study is much more likely to conclude falsely that the toxic treatment is improving the survival rather than you gave it to people who were destined to do better. And in fact, um, you know, for people who are really interested, there is empirical data that that's this, that is the case, that um, observational studies exaggerate the, the upside of toxic and invasive treatments. And I would direct you to um, an editorial we wrote, um, Rahul Banerjee and myself in JAMA Network Open, about a comparison of real-world studies and randomized studies on 140-plus clinical questions, um, which, which shows just as I say. Well, I'll certainly have to look at that. And you've given me comfort that we are not likely to see real world evidence replace the well-designed, well-controlled, randomized clinical trial. I, I think that I think that if we see it replace it, I would worry that it might be an error. Dr. Prasad, Dr. Hurtler, always insightful and always a pleasure. Thank you for the discussion today. To those listening, do not forget to visit us on newcenturyhealth.com for more on this topic and for future episodes in this series. 